0: amen. Please be seated, and if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. You can also find the text for this morning and in the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a very brief outline of today's passage. This morning we will be spending our time in Genesis 2 verses 4 through 17 as we continue the study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And if you have read ahead for uh, preparation of this morning, you may feel a bit puzzled. Um, We, uh, it seems like, have already covered this material. Um, It may look to be a bit redundant, um, if you followed with us from Genesis 1, and you would be right to ask why again. Why repeat a lot of things that have already been said? Some wrongly uh, take this passage and say this is evidence or proof of a second creation event, um, that this is a uh, second set of um, Adam and Eve uh, uh, people of mankind, and, and this is how the world got populated so quickly. Um, we reject that. Um, that does uh, terrible things uh, for your view of Christ and his redemptive work as the second Adam, uh, because he would then be the third. Um, but it also is incorrect in how we look at the biblical narrative. And so what we do need to do as we look at Genesis 2, instead of seeing it as a separate account, a separate event, we see Genesis 1 is the big picture, the formation of the world and everything in it, including mankind. And then Genesis 2 is a very narrow scope focusing on man and God's relationship with man. And there's a purpose in that. There's actually a very specific purpose with what is going on, and that in reality it's it's this. Once you understand what a tool does, it's much easier to use it, isn't it? Once you know what something does, it's easier to um, use it correctly. Well, the same would be said of us as humans, as people of God. Once we understand who we are, why we were created, and for what purpose, we can better live out that purpose. And we do believe God created us with purpose. He created us with intent. He created us by design for a reason. And Genesis 2 focuses in on that reason and helps us unpack who we are before our maker. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to our text and not hear it from me, but hear it from the Lord himself. So I invite you to follow along as we read this morning, From God's word, Genesis chapter 2, I'll begin in verse 4 and read down through verse 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree. That is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the first one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows to Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he's promised us in his word that it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his blessing and his guidance as we go before him. Dear Heavenly Father, we have read your word this morning, and we seek understanding. We seek not only knowledge that we might be right in our own eyes, but we truly seek to know you, for this is your word for your people for such a time as this. And so we humbly come before you asking that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, that you open our hearts, that we might receive your word and truly Believe it today, that it may transform how we look at you and ourselves and one another. May through your word we be convicted that we are called to share this word with each and every one that we come in contact with, that they too might know the truth found therein. Help us in this, O oh Lord. We cannot do it on our own. We need you, we need the power of your Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, guide us as we walk through your word this morning. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This section of Scripture is often described as where God first establishes the covenant of works. This covenant, an eternal agreement with mankind, gives us blessings for obedience and punishment for disobedience and I want to talk about this to see how just how, how great this agreement was for man but let's take a step back and consider what it means for God to covenant with man in the first place Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 7 addresses God's covenant with man and it states this in the first paragraph The distance between God and the creatures is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension of God on his part, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant. We owe God our obedience. We owe God our service. We owe him our relationship. Yet the span is so great, it is too far between us and him, that if he didn't come to us, we would never approach him. And so he bridged that gap by means of covenant. R.C. Sproul commenting on this section, he says this Reformed theology is often called covenant theology. The concept of covenant, which provides the structure or framework for redemptive history and the whole scope of theology is immensely important. It provides the context within which God reveals himself to us, ministers to us and acts to redeem us. And so when we talk about covenant, when we talk about how God relates to us, we are talking about God revealing himself, how God ministers to us, and then redeems us or brings us to himself. Because he wasn't just content with revealing himself to us, he wasn't just content with stepping into our world, stepping into our reality, if you will, but then he sought to bring us to him, to be with him and live with him what a great thought that is and what a great truth of God's word that is and that's what we seek to understand this morning and there are contingencies with that but it would be wrong of us just as wrong as it would be to focus too heavily on the contingencies as it would be for us not to consider at all what God says in his word. And so this morning, I want us to walk through this covenant of works, this eternal agreement with man, focusing on two areas of our passage, to actions God takes with mankind. First, we see that God blesses man. And we start there intentionally, we start there with purpose, primarily because that's where God starts. And we see that in verses 4 through 14. And then we understand or or we uh, come to see the implications of the covenant, of that contract, that eternal divine agreement between God and man as we look at 15 to 17. So we see God's blessing and we see God's contract or covenant or agreement in this passage. And let's take our time walking through it to see just why this is essential for us today. And you will hear me say this throughout our time this morning, uh, but it is vital that we understand one key concept even before we go into verse four. Yes, we are learning about a covenant called the covenant of works. And you would expect works being involved in that, things to do, and there are, and we will address that. But that God even establishes a covenant of works, that God even gives things to do that would please Him and that would be in accord with who He is and what He calls us to be, that is grace. And it would be a failure on my part if talking about works before you, I didn't start with grace. Because God's grace is always present beforehand. We'll see it in our passage we see it in understanding verses like Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace. We could go to Exodus 19 and 20. Exodus 19, uh, in some ways, the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And what does God do? Tell this to the people of Israel. You remind them how I rescued them out of the hands of Egyptians, how I bore them on wings like eagles and called them to myself. Therefore, if you will indeed obey me and keep my commandments, you will be unto me a people of priests, a holy nation unto myself. Salvation, redemption, God's pulling them in, drawing them to himself, proceeds command to follow and to obey we see it in Romans 5 we see it in Exodus 19 and 20 and we even see it here in Genesis chapter 2 and so we must begin there uh, we couldn't start anywhere else or else we would look at this and go okay God I've got my checklist out here we go here's your list and I'll follow it and you'll be happy and life will be good no we must see that it starts with grace How does it start with grace, you ask? Well, we look at several factors. Uh, First, the very first verse. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This pattern, this language, you need to make note of it. These are the generations. This will be an indicator throughout the book of Genesis that we're about to get specific stories or specific events about this person or people or, in this instance, location. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of David. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And what you will see as we finish looking through Genesis 2 and you look at Genesis 3, these are the generations of their time in the garden. We're going to see specific events, specific narratives, specific tellings from God, from the garden for mankind. And what that means, and and how that plays out, and and how that uh, affects the spread of the gospel, how that affects the history of of mankind, how that shapes where we go narrative-wise throughout the rest of Genesis. These generations are where we begin, and it's the generations of the earth and the heavens. It's also um, worth noting that for the first time in Scripture, we have God's name given to us. In your Bibles it's most likely indicated by the all capital Lord. Uh, This will be Yahweh. God will describe himself with this name to Moses um, at the burning bush in Exodus 3. This is the name God gives to himself and says this is how you shall know me. This is how I shall be identified and for reverence of that um, the Hebrew people would not use it, would not say it. Um, It's why it's all caps in Lord and your Bibles as well. And reverence for God. But this is a grace. This is a blessing. God identifies Himself in our passage. God tells us who He is. God gives us of His character. God gives us history so we can know our history, so we can know the events that shape us, that got us to where we are. And we would be remiss to to not see this as a divine blessing. This is also important for us as we consider that we are talking about a covenant, an agreement between God and between mankind. For if you are familiar with um, ancient Near Eastern covenants, they follow a very particular formula. And the first part of the formula, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be a preamble. There has to be a declaration from the king, um, from the sovereign, or also known as the suzerain, who declares, here I am, this is who I am. And so the fact that in verse 4, God says, I am Lord, I am Yahweh. It tells us that he is the king initiating this covenant, initiating this agreement. And not only that, he tells us here it takes place. It takes place in the generations of the heavens and of the earth. Now, if we follow that idea of covenant language, of covenant um, uh, mindset, the next section would then be a historical prologue. The historical prologue would tell us the relationship or the history between the king and the people. And wouldn't you know it, what we have next in our text is a history of the people and of what that king or God has done for them. Look again at verses 5 through 9 with that mindset. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have here an abbreviated retelling, a summary of all of Genesis 1. The totality of the created event, creation event with a particular focus on mankind is right here. Because this is the history of God and man to this point. This is the important information to think about how God has influenced man. We could look at Genesis 2, 5, and 6, and we could tie that to Genesis 1, 1, and 2. The initial forming, how it was without form, it was a void, um, that there was a darkness. Um, we hear in here language of the ground being formed, um, God making man, and God bringing on, bringing on plants and animals and all of the things needed for life. This is a blessing. This is a a beautiful blessing from God. God did not put man in a blank space. He put him in a garden, a garden full of life and beautiful and full of riches and wealth and and full of everything he needed to live. We shouldn't take for granted that God created us and put us in a world that is livable. Um, It would be very easy to not do that. And, And yet God had that in mind for us. We further read blessing into this text and that God didn't only form man, God didn't only create man um, from the ground, but God himself breathed into man the breath of life. And that's an interesting concept. Um, It's one worth studying throughout Scripture, the breath of God. Um, In fact, the word breath is the same word used for spirit. Um, And so if you looked in your your Hebrew, uh, uh, pneuma means to breathe. It also is, is spirit And we see this all throughout Scripture, um, the connection between the two. Um, But by breathing into man, by breathing life into him, he also breathed into him immortality. Um, Maybe not in this current state, maybe not in our our current condition, but we will be immortal beings. Um, Either in God's presence or in God's judgment, we will live forever. Um, And and when we are made new and given um, eternality at the second coming. This is a blessing from God. God does not only create us, He gave us life, and He gave us eternal life. Either life in His presence or life in His judgment, but life. It's worth noting in that regard, Jesus has a similar event um, in His own life, post-resurrection. John chapter 20, with the disciples, he, it said He breathes onto them and gives them the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathing onto them the breath of God, the literal breath of God in Jesus Christ to the disciples. And with that goes the Holy Spirit. And with that goes power to speak and proclaim and deliver the good news of the gospel. And so here we see literal life. In Christ we see spiritual life. There is an understanding that in God there is life. It's why Paul will say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Your translation, um, if you have the NIV or others, it may translate that as God-inspired or Spirit-filled. And those would be right translations. All of those rightly understand what Paul is trying to say. The Word of God recorded for us in the Bible is just that, the Word of God. And what does the word of God, the breath of God, do? It gives life. The key to life, the key to good life, the key to truly living today, the key to understanding who we are and why we were made and what we're called to do is right here, brothers and sisters. It's found in the very words of God Himself. This is a blessing. And we shouldn't miss this, that this was done for man, and it's done for us today. And if we continue in our, in our passage, the, the blessings continue to, to abound. Um, not only did God create man, not only did he breathe life into man, not only did he place man in an environment that is livable, but then he goes one step further and then creates for him a special place within that creation. It says, God then planted a garden in the east. He called it Eden. He put man there whom he had formed. And out of the ground he made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you look back to Genesis 1, you know that the plants and the trees were given to man and to animals for food For sustaining that very life that God gave them. It was not meant to be kind of a one time event, but that life would create life. And this is a blessing from the Lord. But there are two trees in particular here that we don't see in the Genesis 1 event the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know what happens with these trees. We know what's gonna happen um, in uh, the life of Adam and Eve, but be careful that you don't read ahead. That in this moment, what have we said? What was happening in the garden? The garden was good, the garden promoted life, the garden was a place of blessing. And so be very careful you don't look at this tree and say, Why, God? Why did you put that pesky tree in the garden? Because God says that that tree and that garden was good for sight and good for food. And so be careful we don't look into Genesis 3 and read that into Genesis 2, because this was a good event, and it was good from God, and it was a blessing to His people, and it was a blessing by consequence to us. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. If that wasn't enough, if we don't understand fully the, the blessing that God gives and the richness to which God creates, he then goes into the specific um, description of the, um, the rivers and the riches found within the garden. You have rivers going in all directions. Uh, the Pishon. Um, you have uh, the, the Gihon. You have the Tigris. You have the Euphrates, all different directions. Um, I, I wouldn't encourage you to do this. A lot of people do. They t- then take these rivers and then try to like locate the Garden of Eden. Uh, if you're not going to find it. And by the way, if you do read ahead to Genesis 3, God puts an angel with a flame and sword in front of it to guard it. You wouldn't want to find it if you did. And I'm just, I'm just recommending don't challenge God and his angels with flame and swords. Um, but what you should do with this um, is not try to find it geographically, but you should take this and appreciate what God did. Because God made a garden that was good and he filled it with water. Water is another element in the Bible that is related to or tied to life and to God and to God's goodness. With these rivers, with the fertility of them, would also come good soil. This would be a blessing to the people, a farming people, an agricultural uh, people, a people who cared for Animals. Would be necessary that not only is there water, but there's also plants, and so this tells us that there are the things needed to grow. If that wasn't enough, then we get riches, gold, opalium, onyx are there. Things, materials, tools that uh, we could use, uh, that could be traded, that could be offered. Things that the the world will find valuable were present in this garden. God knew what he was doing. He blessed mankind over and over and over and over again. And this is just a brief history. This is just a brief retelling in in the created event. We're we're just at Genesis 2, and and this is all that God has done. Um, Well, this is not all that God has done, but this is a, a great overview of what God has done, and he declares it here in his historical prologue. Remember this, people. Remember this as you think about this story. Remember this as you continue telling it year after year, season after season, century after century. God is good, and this is what he's done for mankind. But another thing that he has done for mankind is he has called them to covenant. He has called them to relationship. And you cannot have a covenant contract um, without promises, without stipulations, without sanctions. And so we've talked about God, we've talked about his history with mankind. Let's turn our attention just a little bit and talk about the world that he's made and and why he gave it to us the way that he did. And we do need to be careful here as we consider this. Once again, I I want to caution us. Christianity is not a bunch of rules that must be followed in order to please God and avoid his wrath. There are a lot of religions that that's what they do, and they're very good at it. Um, and I would encourage you to look at them and look at the shortcomings of them um, and, and ask people who follow them how happy they are. Uh, because it does not lead to a people who love their God and want to worship. It leads to fear, um, it leads to uh, worry, um, it, it, it leads to a lot of anxiety. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about a relationship with the creator God. It is about worshiping that God who made us and who wants to be known by us and wants us to worship him as he has called us to do so. But it would be very wrong to simply state that Christianity is about a relationship for God has given us commands. God has given us rules to follow. And we should see those not as, do this because I said so, but as we've been reading, a continuation of the blessings of God. A continuation of this is from a good God who does good things for his people for their good. That's how we should view this. Because what do the the rules of God, what do the laws of God do? They help us, they guide us in holiness. In being like God. As we follow God's word, as we follow his commands, we're transformed into his image, more and more like him. We hate sin more and more in our lives and in the lives of others. We seek to do it less. We seek to follow him more, which leads to more blessing. Heavenly speaking, of course. Rules and regulations are for our benefit. And so we shouldn't cower when we hear them. We shouldn't shy away. Um, And it shouldn't surprise us that they're present. Um, In fact, we, we see at least three promises and stipulations in the text we have before us. Verse 15 begins with this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The first stipulation given to man is to work and keep the garden. This is what man has to do. Man is to work, and work was good. One of the commentaries of the Old Testament on Genesis says this of this passage, and I love the way they put it. There is no magic in Eden. Gardens cannot look after themselves, they are not self perpetuating. Man is placed there to dress it and to keep it. The point is made clear here. Physical labor is not a consequence of sin. Work enters the picture before sin does, and if man had never sinned, he would still be working. Eden is certainly not a paradise in which man passes his time in idyllic and uninterrupted bliss with absolutely no demands upon his daily schedule. The implied blessing there with this call to work is that it would be fruitful. That as man worked, he would yield the fruit of his labor. And just like God designed it, it would be good and a blessing. And that would abound. And by working, man would come in greater glory and worship of God. So the first promise and or stipulation we see in this covenant is work. The second relates to what man actually cannot do. In verses 16 and 17, we're told... The Lord God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Man was commanded to freely enjoy any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was off limits to mankind. Do this, do work. We could also see elsewhere, populate the earth, subdue it, make it yours. Don't eat of this tree. Don't take of its fruit. So we have a stipulation in work. We have a stipulation in not eating. And then the final stipulation is tied to the consequence of breaking this command. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Implied, of course, but if you don't eat of it, then you shall live. Don't eat of this tree. Keep my command. Obey me. Do what I say. Live in this paradise-like world. Work it to your good and my glory, and you shall live. Don't listen to me, and you're going to die. Disobey me, and you will die. You will face consequence for your action. Death. Being the sanction of this covenant contract. Do not follow these stipulations and you will face death. Life for obedience, death for disobedience. Now, we would have to go further into the narrative uh, to uh, close out our walking through a covenant contract um, in an ancient Near Eastern way. Um, We would need to uh, look for the oath being taken Um, We would need to look for a cutting rite or blood being shed, um, and then copies of the covenant made and distributed to both parties. Um, And we do see this in this covenant just later on in our study. But even from this early form, even as we've only gotten thus far in um, a covenant and thus far in the passage, um, I pray that you see how this is a promise to mankind, and it was a good promise. Once again, I want you to be very careful not to think that God tricked us in establishing the covenant of works. It was not set up so that we would fall. It was set up and God knew we would fall, and so he baked that into the design, but it was not set up so that we would fall. It it was not its original intent in that regard. But the question you may be asking yourself, and I hope you are, and it's appropriate to do so, How does this apply to me? How does this affect me today? If this is the original contract, yeah, we get it. We understand. Genesis 3 happens, they mess it up. Things get bad for us. Now, when I garden, I get weeds. I mean, all of my plants don't always yield the fruit that it should yield. And sometimes I get a lot of it, and sometimes I get a little of it. I mean, life is hard. How does this affect me today? Is this still in effect? does this still apply? These are questions that you should ask of this passage and and you should be asking yourself. And (laughs) just like last week, when I asked a question of this nature, I'm going to respond with yes and no. Uh, The answer is both. Does this apply to me today? Yes and no. Yes, the covenant of works was for all of mankind throughout all time. When man fell through Adam and Eve, all of mankind fell into sin, and yet the covenant still is in effect. You today are bound by the covenant of works. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live. I am the Lord. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Galatians 3.12, lest you accuse me of only quoting the Old Testament. The law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Be very careful with hearing these and and don't conflate your theology. Um, But the truth stands... Here and elsewhere in Scripture, we we clearly see we are bound by the covenant of works, which states, I am your God, you are my people. Obey me and you shall live. Disobey me and you shall die. Now that puts us in a bad position, doesn't it? That is really not a good agreement for our part, is it? Because how many of us have obeyed perfectly, fully? Fully? which by the way is the way it reads it's not just that you obey but it's that you do so perfectly 100% every day every aspect of your life in thought word and deed in what you do and what you not what you don't do what you think and how you live that out the reality is is we're in trouble the reality is is left up to our own devices as much as we like to think that we wouldn't have failed like Adam did we would have failed even quicker We've, we probably wouldn't even have made it through God creating. We'd have found some way to fail even before the tree was in the garden. Somewhere in that like half second between the two things. We're without hope, aren't we? Well, that's where the, my answer changes. Are we still bound to this covenant? Are we still under this law? Does this still weigh upon us today and are we just damned for all eternity and there's nothing we can do by no means? If we just read Galatians 3.12, we get into a very depressed mood. Uh, The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does it shall live by it. But there's hope if you keep reading. It's why context is king. And be very careful you never take text out of their context or you don't see the full picture. Um, Now that was intentional to, to make a point. But here, let me finish the quote. Christ redeemed for us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this takes us right back where we started. It's why I said we must start with grace. Grace, Jesus Christ, became a curse for us. He looked at our estate. He looked at our life. He looked at where we were. He knew we were fallen. He knew we couldn't get out of the cycle that we were in. And He knew left on to our own, we would face death. And what did He do? He instead faced death. Stipulation. Obey me, you shall live. Disobey me, you shall die. Christ died and then said, now you live. Christ took our curse and said, now you be holy. Christ took our penalty and said, now you be blessed. Christ took what was ours and gave us what was his. And so if you trust in him today, if you seek the forgiveness of your sin in Christ alone, he accepts it. He forgives you. He places it on that cross. He places it in that tomb. He places it far away from you and your life So that you may say, am I still bound by this covenant? No. And yes, I am not bound because I will not face the penalty. I am bound by it because Christ bound himself to me in it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what I personally am blessed to proclaim to you each and every week. And I pray that each and every week you hear this. I pray that as we go through Genesis, wherever we go next, as a guest pastor comes and preaches and proclaims to you God's word from his word, that you hear this news in some form or another. It's the most important thing you can hear. You cannot live without it. And I hurt for anyone I hurt for you if you do not trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're hearing this message today and you're with us today or you're joining us online because when you walk out those doors, the weight of the covenant of works is upon you. If God calls you home, if a plane falls from the sky and lands on you right now, you will stand before Him and you will give an account for your life and your works will not line up. They won't do it. But if you're in Christ and that same plane falls, you'll be in heaven before your body hits the ground. Before the explosion stops. You need that. I need that. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it home today without that news. And I pray you know that today. Today. I pray that you see that this was so important. We're not even out of the creation event. We've only been a chapter and a half in God's word. And this is the fifth time we've proclaimed the gospel from his word in four sermons. Think about that math for a moment. We can't get away from it. God is good. And God's love is without measure. He blesses mankind in the garden. And then and only then does he call them to obedience so that we wouldn't think it's because of us. Because we often do. The distance between God and the creatures is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased To express by the way of covenant. In Jesus Christ. You can know God and be known by God. And this is his promise to you today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father. Oh that everyone here today would cling to that truth. Oh that we would all recognize that we could have been placed in that perfect garden, that we could have been placed in that heavenly reality where everything was good and everything was by design and everything served a purpose and everything declared you and who you are and what you've done for us and how you relate to us and that you want to know us. And even further, that you walked with Adam and Eve in the garden yourself and we would have sinned. We would have fallen short. We would have failed. And you know our hearts. You know our reality. You know that truth. And so even in the covenant of works, you provide blessing. Even in the creating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you provide blessing because you, in those creative events, in those moments, declare a path for Jesus. You begin to make the way for our Savior to come to sacrifice himself, that we may have a greater circumstance, greater than what Adam had in the garden. Not only do we have opportunity to walk with you, God, we have an opportunity to be called your children, to be sons and daughters of the king, a higher estate than Adam had, a higher estate than Eve had, we can have in you through Christ. And so we praise you for the blessing of creation. We praise you for the blessing of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We praise you for the blessing of this covenant of works and what it binds to us because by it, we are bound to Christ if we but trust in you. Help us trust in you and to your word and to the good news of the gospel today and every day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for providing it for us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.